I love the church. I do. I love the church from my earliest memories. I remember being excited about going to church to be around the people of God because the people of God were not foreign to me. They were family. We did life together. I love the stories we would tell. I love the songs that we would sing together. I really loved the chocolate-covered donuts and chocolate milk that Miss Patricia brought every week to our Sunday school. I just grew up loving the church. I'm so grateful that my parents drug me to church, right? You heard that saying, I had a drug problem growing up? I had a drug problem. I got drugged to church every week. And I'm so grateful for it now because of how the Lord birthed in me a love for the people of God. And my love for the church continued to grow as I grew. Despite some really difficult circumstances at times, I gotta be honest with you guys, there were, there were times in the course of my life where my love for the church was tested where I saw the very people whom I loved and did in my life to start treating each other really poorly. I saw a terrible church split over worship preferences because they couldn't sing the, the style of songs they wanted to sing anymore. The very people that we used to have over in our homes suddenly became enemies. How does that happen other than the work of the enemy? I saw a church torn apart by generational jealousy and racism. We're not going to reach those people. Or that generation, those younger people, they're getting privilege or privileged treatment over us older people who've been here a long time. But we're entitled to say who goes where and what we do when because we've been here the longest. Why are you giving all the attention to them? What about us? The worst things that have ever been said to me in my life were said to me in a church building by church people. What a shame. I've been burned by the church, and yet, in spite of all of that, I still have an undying love for the church. I still love her. I'm still giving my life to her. Why? I remember I had a conversation with God one night after one of these instances where I saw the worst side of the church, and I was crying out to the Lord, God, what is the point? Why am I giving my life to this? Why am I pursuing this at all? Why, why am I giving my money to this institution? If God's people aren't going to be God's people, they're not going to act like the gospel has done anything in their life. If they're not going to be gracious and forgiving and merciful to each other, why would I even try? Why would I even try? Maybe I should just leave it. Maybe I should worship Jesus on my own and be a spiritual person and not be associated with the institutional church at all. And I was, I was walling in my self-pity. The Lord kind of struck me with some truth. He brought something to my mind, a thought that is found or founded on the truth of God, similar to what Paul charges Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 16. Here's what the Bible says. I hope to come to you soon. But I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. Hear me. A pillar and a buttress, a defender of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. It could be translated the mystery of our faith. Here's the, the central claim of what we believe, this great mystery, this, 
that we confess together as the people of God. He, Jesus, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. It's a powerful confession. And in these verses, Paul reminds us, and consequently me at the time, of the importance of the church of the reason why we should stay committed to the church, of the reason why we should love the church. The church is the household of God. The household of God. The household of the living God. And she upholds and defends the truth of the gospel, the mystery of our faith that we see outlined in verse 16. Jesus, the Son of God, was born in the flesh He died, but he didn't stay in the grave. He came out of it. He was vindicated, and his victory was observed by all of creation. All the heavens, all the earth have seen the power of God on display in Christ. He's ascended into glory, and friends, nothing is the same. Everything is different because of what God has done for us in Christ. The church has been entrusted with this message. You have been entrusted with this message. We have been entrusted with this message because we are the church. Turn to your neighbor and say, hey, I'm the church. Turn to your other neighbor and say, hey, you're the church. You know what that means? You, me, we, we have been entrusted with the message of the gospel, the great mystery of our faith that we confess. We have no other declaration. We have no other declaration than what God has done for us in Jesus. We have no other source of hope to offer the world. And the world needs the church because the world needs the gospel. The world needs the church because the world needs the gospel. We are the plan, friends. We are the God-ordained means of spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth. We have a responsibility to fight for the church and protect her because of the message that has been entrusted to her. It was as if God was saying to me, do you love my bride enough to fight for her? Do you believe in the mission that I have given her enough to stay and try to fix it? Because you got no business complaining about something that you don't try to help fix. We have a responsibility to protect the church because in protecting the church, we protect the God-ordained means of gospel proclamations to, uh, proclamation to the nations. And this is what First Timothy is all about. The book that we are beginning today that will take us through the summer. It's what First Timothy is all about. Yes, First Timothy is a letter from the Apostle Paul to Timothy, but it is a letter for the church today as well to help us know how we should behave as the people of God, how we should organize ourselves in order to protect ourselves 
so that we can remain a pillar and defender of the truth, the gospel. This letter provides us with an opportunity as a church. Through this summer, we're going to be called to consider how we're behaving. We're going to be considered to, uh, called to consider how we're teaching. We're going to be called to consider how we are promoting the gospel, how we are defending the gospel. And I want to challenge all of us as we approach the text this summer to sit with open hearts, open minds, to not come with any tradition or agenda to the text, but sit under the authority of God's word and let the spirit of God through the word of God shape us into the people of God that God has for us to be. Listen, there's a lot of challenging, difficult things that we're going to cover in 1 Timothy. Many issues that are front of mind, even today, that we need to discuss and seek God's wisdom in. And we'll get to those, but here's my promise. If we commit to surrender our preferences and our agendas to the will of God, we will come out on the other side of the study as stronger people, a more faithful people committed to defending, upholding the truth of the gospel. So let's dive in. We'll begin at the beginning, the first 11 verses of 1 Timothy. Here's what the word of God says. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, not by some weird circumstance or chance encounter, but by command of God, our Savior and of Christ Jesus, our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love, that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. That's got to be the worst teacher in the history of the world. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully as it was intended. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Timothy is in Ephesus, probably in the early to mid-60s AD. Paul likely has just been released from Roman prison and is going on another missionary journey, one that's not recorded in the book of Acts. And he desires to come with, and be with Timothy and to be with the people of the church of Ephesus. But for some reason, he is not able yet to come. But there are issues that need to be addressed. There are things that are happening in the church at Ephesus that are threatening 
their ability to remain a pillar of the gospel and defender of the gospel. And Paul says to Timothy, because I can't get there, you're up. You're up. I'm entrusting this ministry to you. I'm entrusting this charge to you. Paul knows Timothy. He trusts him completely. He is his son in the faith, verse 2. Paul has walked with Timothy for a long time as a spiritual father, building upon the foundation that was sown in him by the Spirit through the influence of his mother and his grandmother, as we saw in 2 Timothy chapter 1. And now Paul is entrusting Timothy with his authority in order to set things right in Ephesus, to protect the church in Ephesus. And this is a major undertaking for Timothy, who's probably in his early to mid-30s. And people are going to be asking, what kind of people would entrust their church to a guy in his early to mid-30s? But Paul has confidence in Timothy because he's seen the fruit of the Spirit at work in him. He knows that his faith is strong, and he knows that God has equipped him just for this moment. And what's the issue in Ephesus? False teaching. Surprise, surprise. Here we go again. As we've walked through James, 2 Peter, now 1 Timothy, I hope you get the sense that the New Testament, God takes seriously when his people do not teach his truth. When we pervert it, For our own ends, God takes that very seriously because you're not going to have your name attached to his and not be saying what he said. And I hope you also understand and see the depravity of humanity and how often we take the very clear word of God and manipulate it for our own ends. How we, we take the truth of God's word, what is sound in doctrine, and we try to make it fit our lives instead of allowing our lives to be shaped and molded by the Word of God. Too often, we want the Word of God to conform with our will instead of our will being conformed to the Word of God. And we will abuse it if we are not careful. And so these moments are really important for us to make sure that we are surrendered in the right way to the authoritative Word of God and that we are striving to teach as faithfully as we can be for His glory. These false teachers were consumed with myths, according to verse 4, devoting themselves to these myths and endless genealogies. Doesn't that sound like the worst Sunday school class ever? I can't wait to flip through the genealogies in my Bible, and yet somehow these guys have concocted endless genealogies. Count me out. Yet for some reason, it was very fascinating to the people in this church then. And we don't fully know what the teaching was that was consumed with these myths and endless genealogies. Likely it was a bad interpretation of Genesis that had been kind of maneuvering through different Jewish circles and found its way into the church. But what they were teaching is not as important as the way that it diverted from the true gospel of Jesus Christ and the motivation for them teaching this. They didn't have confidence in the gospel. They didn't have confidence that it was enough to grab people's attention and hold them and convert them. They were teaching things that did not matter. They were being distracted by what God had clearly unfolded in his word. Being more fascinated by their own ideas and their own creations 
rather than what God has spoken. They are mere speculations, verse 4. And Paul says, we were not called to teach speculations. We were not called to teach the ideas of man. We weren't called to teach our own thoughts. We were called to be stewards of the word of God. We were called to take what he has revealed, the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, the redemptive narrative that spans across scripture, and we're to steward that in the life of our people. What these people are teaching is not the true gospel. They are not speaking what is plain and revealed by God. They are rather championing something different, not the work of Christ. And Paul says it's vanity. It's vanity. There's no, there's no power in it. Why? Because God's not in it. It's not God's word. It's not God's truth. It's man's word and man's mythology. And as a result, the Holy Spirit will not bless it to transform lives. Teaching's in vain. Here these teachers are teaching the quote-unquote law of God, but they have no understanding of the law. They don't know how to, to use it. They have no understanding about what they are saying or the assertions that they are making. They think the law is a play tool. The Old Testament is just some fun thing to, to pursue and, and try to unfold some secret mystery that God's hidden in it only for the few and specific people who get it right. What a flawed misunderstanding what the Old Testament is trying to do. Paul says there's a benefit to the Old Testament. The law is good and how it unveils sin, how it exposes our darkened hearts and how we want to embrace things that are contrary to the truth and will of God. That's its purpose, to point us to Christ. But the way they're teaching, it in no way points to Christ. It points back to them. And as a result, their teaching is in vain. When we teach anything other than the gospel, the work is not achieved because God will not honor it. And so Paul says to Timothy, for the good of the church and for the good of these teachers, you've got to step in. You've got to go correct it because they are not teaching Christ. The teaching must be addressed because in teaching this way, these teachers are not helping the church be a pillar of the gospel and a defender of the gospel. They are not unfolding the mystery of our faith, the centerpiece of our faith, the work of Christ. Rather, they are being distracted by other things that don't matter. And in fact, they're giving an open door to the enemy to come and distract or divide God's people. Call them once again to stewardship, not speculation. Paul says to Timothy, you have to undertake this work of protection. You have to address the ones who are not teaching rightly and to raise up other teachers who are committed to the gospel because that is the message of the church. And you gotta do it for the right reasons. The aim of our charge, verse five, is love. That issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith, having been transformed by the gospel, having believed in the gospel, and the sincere faith of the gospel, you should love the church enough 
And you should love these teachers enough to come to them and say, hey, I've got something better for you. I've got something better to give your time to than these myths and endless genealogies. I love you enough to say to you that what you're teaching and what you're pursuing is vain. It's vanity. Let me bring you back to what we should be devoting ourselves to. And if you're not willing to do that, Timothy, then what on earth are we here for? If we're just going to sit around and speculate about the ideas of man, then go join a book club. That is not the work of the church. That is not what we have been called to. You must lead the church to be the protector and projector of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want to declare to you this morning, First Baptist Church of Irving, this is what your pastors and your elders desire of this body. We want to be this kind of church. We want to be a pillar and defender of the gospel. We want the gospel to be supreme in our church. We want to be a kind of church that upholds the gospel and lifts it high, a pillar. We want to be known for our devotion to the gospel every Sunday. We want you to come into this room or any environment where the word of God is being taught, and we want you to consider the mystery of our faith. We want you to marvel at the fact that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was manifested in the flesh. That he left the glory of heaven and took on flesh and dwelt among us. How incredible. What, what kind of love is that? That he would leave all of that for this. And yet he did that. We want you to marvel at that. That he was manifested in the flesh. That he died for us. He lived a perfect, sinless life to meet the righteous, holy standard of God that we could not meet and became our perfect substitutionary atonement, our sacrifice upon the cross. But he did not stay in the grave after he died. He was vindicated by the Spirit. We want you to know that there's, there's no more fear holding us any longer at the prospect of death because our greatest enemy, sin and death, have been overcome by the incredible, mighty work of Jesus Christ. We want you to know that the power of God displayed in the cross and the empty grave was seen by all of creation such that the powers and principalities that had control over this earth since the fall of man trembled because they saw God was still in control. This gospel is being proclaimed among the nations. Lives are being changed. People are believing unto faith the work of Christ. And Jesus is reigning over us in glory. And he will return to take us home once again. That is the good news, friends. We will uphold that. We will lift it high. Because it is the power to save. It is the power to transform. What are we doing? If we're not teaching that gospel and we want to defend it, when we see false teachers creeping into our own church or threatening the faithful ministry of this church, we will address it. We'll address it because we love you. We love you enough to say that what you're hearing and what you're listening to and what you're believing and what you're teaching is not worthy of the church. It's not worth you. I mean, compared to this, don't marvel at some code that you think you found in the scripture. 
Don't marvel at endless genealogies. Don't marvel at mythology. You marvel at the clear work of God in Christ. We want God to honor the work that we do here. We don't want it to be in vain. And so in every environment, we're going to build in a commitment to the gospel because we know that God has promised when we exalt Jesus, the spirit will be in that work. And rather it being in vanity, it will be vital to the ministry and life of this body. We want to be a pillar and buttress of the truth. But I need you to hear me this morning. Your leaders, your pastors, your elders desire this for you, but we can't achieve this commitment on our own. In order to be this kind of church, we all have to be committed to upholding the gospel of Jesus Christ in the same way. Otherwise, it won't happen. And so I want to ask you this morning, will you join us in committing to be this kind of church? Will you join us in in making sure that the priorities of Scripture, the priorities that God has established are our priorities that God will bless the work that we do here. So let's unfold some of these commitments that we're asking you to join us in. Firstly, we will commit to gospel-centeredness. In everything we do, we will be gospel-centered. In fact, we want to be known about our, of our commitment to the gospel about anything else. It is my prayer that our church would not be known for its traditions. It is my prayer that our church would not be known for our music styles. It is my prayer that our church would not be known for our cool historic buildings or sometimes very hot historic buildings. It is my prayer that we will not be known for our activities or our programs or the way that we keep up with current trends and practices in our culture. None of those, well, some of those things are not all bad. They can be tools of the gospel. But first and foremost, I want us to be a people who are known for our commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want us to speak of the redemption of God, the work that he has done for us in Christ always. I want us to remind each other of it often because we recognize the unique role this message has in transforming our hearts and restoring our relationships and pointing us to Christ. I don't need a self-help book to tell me how to help my marriage. I need the gospel. You got trouble in your marriage? Go read the book of Ephesians. How Paul unfolds, how the gospel literally changes everything, our relationship with God and with each other. And so that if we are walking in Christ and we are committed to, un- to allowing the gospel to be unfolded in our marriage, our marriage will be different, never the same. Because we're going to be committed to forgiving each other, to exposing grace to each other, to honoring Christ in everything that we do, including the way that we spend our money. When Christ is central, it's amazing how our marriage becomes healthy. You got problems with your your children, raising your kids? Go read Ephesians 6. The same truth applies. When the gospel is central to what we want to do, and we have the heart of our Father for the heart of our kids, 
It's amazing how our family life changes. Jared, I don't know what to do at work. I hate my job. I'm, in, I'm surrounded by sinners all the time. Isn't it amazing how the gospel will change that perspective to where you can begin to celebrate the fact that you are light in darkness, that God has uniquely placed you in your position to be able to be salt and light to a world in need such that in the morning you don't wake up overwhelmed and burdened by the fact that you're going to be surrounded by sinners all day, but rather you begin to rejoice with the opportunity to go share the gospel with people who need it. And the church becomes an oasis for you on Sundays to get built back up to go out and do it again. That's why God left us here. You see how God, the gospel changes everything, every, every issue that we have, every experience of difficulty, of sinfulness in this life, the gospel speaks to. And that's why we need to make it our priority to speak it to each other often. There's no better way to encourage each other. There's no better way to build each other up. There's no other kind of, of teaching or admonishment or rebuking of the spirit will honor outside of the gospel. And we're going to make it a priority. We will be gospel-centered in everything we do. Every ministry we do, I hope you know, we're going to choose programs based on whether or not they are gospel-centered. How we unfold those programs will be decided based on whether or not they help us be gospel-centered. Does it put the gospel above all? Is it the gospel first? If it is, great, we'll embrace it. How we spend our money, how we allocate our resources will all be decided and thought through based on the, the litmus test of whether or not it helps us be gospel-centered in our approach to ministry. And that's why it's, it matters so incredibly that all of you are on board. Because you're going to expect that of us as we lead. And you're going to be asking the same questions that we do. Does this program help us focus on Christ? Does it help us help our children focus on Christ? Does it help us missionally engage other nations and cultures with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Is it the best use of our resources in order to be a pillar and a buttress of the truth? We're not a daycare, right? We're not bouncing babies for no reason. We are investing in a generation the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're not entertainers. Just for entertainers' sake, I hope that what we do up here is somewhat engaging, but not for the sake of just pure entertainment. But does it help us accomplish stirring your heart with the gospel and good news of Jesus Christ? If it doesn't, we're not going to do it. If it does, we're going to embrace it. Will you walk with us in that? Will you commit to being gospel-centered with us? Listen, I know a lot of churches who are known for other things, who are known for their commitment to worship styles, who are known for their creative stage props, who are known for their mercy ministries and how they help with physical needs, who are known for their patriotism and support of a particular political party. I know churches who are known for their wealth. And some of those aren't bad, some of those are bad. But I want you to hear me loud and clear today. It is our desire that we will be known for the gospel. When you're talking to your friends, hey, what is, what's First Baptist Church of Irving like? Man, we love the gospel of Jesus Christ. We talk about it all the time. Don't you ever get tired of hearing about Jesus over and over again? Never. 
How could our hearts grow cold to the kind of a love that God has shown us in Christ? No, rather I salivate. I long to hear more of the gospel because of how it reminds me of the kind of God that I serve. A loving father who sent his son and now no longer calls me enemy but child. I never get over it. And if you knew him the way that I knew him, you wouldn't get over it either. We're going to be gospel-centered. Secondly, we're going to promote faithful teaching. Commit to gospel-centeredness, promote faithful teaching. Now, obviously, these are connected. We're going to be gospel-centered in the way that we teach. We want to be diligent to study the scriptures in the right way. We're not going to teach moralism. We're not going to teach behaviorism. We're going to teach the gospel. We believe that the entire scripture from Genesis to Revelation speaks of Christ. And we believe that because Jesus himself said it does. The Old Testament anticipates the coming of Christ. The gospels speak to the coming of Christ. The rest of the New Testament reflect on the impact, the effect of the coming of Christ and anticipates his return. The whole Bible is about Jesus. Even the Old Testament, yes. So Paul is saying here, there's good in the law if one uses it lawfully. We don't understand the Old Testament just to help us celebrate people who are like you and me. We don't find our heroes there. They're all pointing to a greater hero. We don't, we don't look at the Old Testament just to unfold the kind of behaviors that we are to embrace if we are in Christ. Because apart from the gospel, they're burdens that you cannot bear on your own. That's what the whole testimony of the Old Testament is. Every time God revealed his holiness to Israel and put forward with them behaviors that they were expected to embrace in light of God's holiness, all it did was reveal that they could not do it. It was a burden that was too high to bear on their own. Over and over and over again, the holiness of God exposes the sinfulness of man and points us to the centerpiece of our hope in Jesus. We could not achieve the holy and righteous standard of God, and we were longing for someone who would come and enable us, empower us to once again be reconciled to God and live as he created us to. And that person is Jesus. The law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. We're going to teach to unveil the holy, righteous standard of God. We're going to teach to unveil the sinfulness of our hearts and the way that we fall short and how we cannot achieve that standard. And that in that moment of desperation, we're going to turn your eyes to Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of your faith. And it's going to stir joy in you because you knew the desperate place you were in. You knew that you could not get back to God. And in that moment of lostness, he reached down and picked you up. I don't care what page of the Bible you're on. That's how you approach it. We're going to teach in a gospel-centered way. And that starts with me. And it funnels through every teaching environment we have on our campus. Teachers, 
small group leaders, adult teachers, student teachers, kid teachers, preschool teachers, are you committed to teaching through the lens of the gospel every week? Every week, are you pointing people to Jesus, not to themselves, not to their own abilities, but to Christ? Are you causing them to marvel at the mystery of our faith, about the work of Christ and what it has enabled us to do? Serve God faithfully, to walk in joy and restoration. Hear me, the ministry of the word is a gift to our church. There's so many environments where we sit under the authority of the word of God and we talk about what it means for our lives and that's incredible, but we need to make sure that we're thinking about it the right way, that we're teaching it the right way and not that we're making confident assertions about which we know nothing, that we're teaching without understanding. Oh, as a teacher and a preacher of God's word, I fear that verse. But I would ever stand up here and communicate without understanding or say things about which I'm confident about and yet know nothing. Let's remember the, the privilege of teaching. It's not a right, it's a privilege. Let's sit with humility before the word of God. And when our pastors and elders or our people come to us and say, hey, listen, brother, sister, I don't, I don't know that you're dividing the word of God rightly. I don't, I don't see the gospel infused in your teaching. And I want to challenge you because I love you. Maybe take a different approach. Are we going to be committed to that kind of teaching? Are we going to be committed to a gospel focus when we teach? But the, the work of Christ will always be before us because only when we promote the gospel, only when we exalt the work of Christ will lives be changed. Otherwise, we're just engaged in vanity. Just engaged in vanity. What's the point? Thirdly, we're going to commit to gospel-centeredness. We're going to promote faithful teaching, and we're going to aim to love well. Not only are we going to promote the gospel with our words, we're going to promote the gospel with our lives. We're going to evidence the effect of the gospel in our church. When we exalt Christ and he draws people to himself, when we promote the work of the gospel, it's going to change the way we relate to God, but also to each other. We're going to love each other well. God loves his church enough to not let it stay in error. Your pastors and elders love you enough to not let you stay in error. I hope that you love each other enough to not let you stay in error. We're going to embrace the truth of the gospel that the work of the Spirit in our lives gives us pure hearts, good consciences, and sincere faith that allows us to encourage one another with the gospel, but also to rebuke one another with the gospel when appropriate to challenge each other. That's part of loving well. If Jude is doing something wrong, I love him enough to correct him because I want what's best for him. I don't want him to burn his hand on a stove. I don't want to stick, him, to stick his hand in a toilet, which he did yesterday. I want him to, to know how to behave, how to, to live in a way that's safe 
It's good for him. And if we, if we have that desire for our children, don't we have that of ourselves? That we, we love each other enough to speak and shouldn't we welcome that as well? If our desire is to be Christ-like and to honor him in everything that we do, if our end goal is to defend the gospel and uphold the gospel, if there's something in our life that is not defending or upholding the gospel and a brother or sister in love comes to us and says, hey, listen, I think there may need to be some adjustments in the way that you teach or in the way that you live. Shouldn't we rejoice in that? That God would provide us with someone who loves us enough to come and tell us? There's, some, there's another way for us to be more like Jesus and promote his gospel? That's loving each other well. There's this lie in culture that to love someone, you have to accept them exactly as they are. Loving doesn't remove a standard. Loving shows the standard and then points them to the greatest act of love in the history of the world, the work of Christ, that enables them to meet the standard they could not meet on their own. Friends, let's love each other well. Even in moments of discipline, even in moments of rebuke, as Timothy is doing here to these teachers. It's out of love. And if it's not out of love, you shouldn't do it. But the gospel transforms our hearts and calls us to love each other enough to act for the benefit of the church and ultimately for the benefit of the world. Because we've been entrusted with the gospel. I hope you see, friends, the church is worth fighting for. The church is worth loving which is worth defending, giving your life to, because it has been entrusted with the gospel. May we take this stewardship seriously. Can you just hear God saying to us, First Baptist Church of Irving, remain in Irving so that you can do the work of the gospel. First Baptist Church of Irving, you are to steward the mystery of our faith. You're to be a pillar of the gospel a defender of the gospel. And that's a commitment we all have to embrace. Wherever you are, would you bow your head? Spend some time before the Lord, asking him to help you know how to respond. The first question I have to ask is this, have you ever responded to the gospel at all? You can't uphold and defend a gospel you've never embraced. Have you ever recognized your sin and how it separated you from God? Have you ever seen Jesus for who he is and what he's done for you? Are you have you marveled at the mystery of this faith? If not, that's got to be your first step today. Just a minute. We'll have some pastors and ministers here in the front. We'd love to speak with you. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. We want that for you. We want your heart to be changed, to have a sincere faith, a good conscience. For the rest of us, though, who have embraced this gospel, are we committed to it? Are we committed to promoting it? To teaching in a way that 
that constantly pulls people to Jesus, to exalting him and not ourselves, to being fascinated by the work of God, not our own work. Father, would you help us to be faithful? We want to please you in everything that we do. Help us know how to behave in the household of God. Help us to teach in such a way that honors you. Help us to uphold and defend the good news you've entrusted to us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.